This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. In 1881, British General Charles Gordon took a trip to the Seychelles Islands. The general had been dispatched by the British Empire to Mauritius, a small island off the coast of Madagascar, where he was to assume a command role. But first, he visited Pralin, the second largest island in the Seychelles, where he planned to make notes on the island's possible eligibility as a defensive outpost. He was enraptured by the place. Its beauty was unparalleled. Dense, undisturbed greenery with trees sprouting coconuts that weighed over 60 pounds. After his journey, he scribbled a manuscript with maps and diagrams, arguing for the importance and the holiness of this island. In these documents, General Charles Gordon used biblical and geographic evidence to make a bold claim that he had stumbled right into the lost Garden of Eden. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries on the Parcast Network. I'm your host, Richard. And I'm your host, Molly. This is our final episode on the Garden of Eden, the biblical paradise that, according to the book of Genesis was mankind's first home. You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, on Twitter at ParCast Network, and at ParCast.com. Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Last week, we discussed the centuries-long debate over whether the garden even really existed and the biblical and geographic evidence for each argument. We also looked at the ways in which the Eden story has planted roots and cultures across the globe in the millennia since its writing. This week, we're on the hunt 
looking at the actual expeditions to find Eden, as well as theories that use the biblical text as a map for where the garden may have originally been. Was it in the Middle East, where the cultures that wrote these stories were born? Or was it in South America, where lush forests lend themselves to comparisons with the abundant paradise of religion and myth? When we've examined all the evidence, you may even find that the Garden of Eden did exist, but not in the way you imagined it. Over the centuries, it might have seemed like the quest to find the Garden of Eden was little more than fodder for eccentric hobbyists. Proposed locations were often barely justified by the Bible, let alone by science or geography. In part one of our Eden series, you heard how Columbus's expedition to South America led him to a lake that he came to believe sat at the entryway to the legendary garden. He was confident that this discovery of Eden was a key stepping stone on his journey to conquering Jerusalem and bringing about the Second Coming. But these theorists were not just oddballs high on messianic fervor and a thirst for the end times. Not always, anyway. Like Columbus, a lot of the most prominent Eden theorists were men of real power and influence. And many of them backed up their claims with detailed, thoughtful evidence and analysis. They might have sometimes filled in the blanks with assumptions or guesses, but where they could, they leaned on proof. In this episode, we'll examine proposed locations of the garden, which include everywhere from the Middle East to the North Pole to Jackson County, Missouri. The European discovery of the New World led to a re-examination of the biblical text, now that scholars had a whole new continent to consider. After Columbus's claim that he'd found the path to Eden in the New World, other historians glommed on quickly to the idea that the garden lay at the equator, and particularly in the temperate climates of South America. A plethora of other historians from the time favored South America as the location, too. But that all changed with John Calvin. John Calvin had many titles— Teacher, reformer, theologian. Born in 1509, John Calvin would become one of the key figures of the Protestant Reformation, alongside Martin Luther. The Reformation challenged the power of the ruling Catholic class, a class that Calvin himself had been raised in. This gave rise to Protestantism, a new sect of Christianity of which Calvin was a preeminent figure. As such, his theological opinions held some serious weight— So when, in 1556, he proposed Mesopotamia as the probable location for the Garden of Eden, people listened. In the spirit of the blossoming Renaissance, Calvin made his claims using deduction and reason based on the text of Genesis. He began with a simple claim, that it was widely agreed that the Tigris and Euphrates were two of the rivers mentioned in the original story. That immediately ruled out South America and most of the other pet theories of the previous few centuries. More, the Tigris and Euphrates joined one another in the former land of Babylon, now Iraq and Iran. After this junction, the two rivers split again. Calvin argued that at this point, the Tigris and Euphrates became the Gihon and the Pison. Perhaps most importantly, Calvin backed up his theory with a labeled map of the region, which he included in his widely published and translated commentaries. It was also reproduced in the Bishop's Bible, an English translation of the Bible produced by the Church of England in 1568. 
The illustration and its wide distribution gave prominence to the idea that Eden was located in Mesopotamia. Specifically near modern-day Baghdad, Iraq. Others quickly took this interpretation and ran with it, pointing to the extraordinarily fertile soil of the region as further proof. That same rich soil, of course, is how the region came to be the cradle of civilization. It was a popular theory, even making its way into John Milton's epic 1667 poem, Paradise Lost. Milton placed Eden in Assyria, part of Mesopotamia, and the idea was so widely accepted that most scholars shifted focus to little details, where Adam lived precisely or how big Eden really was. Whatever intricacies were left to be dissected, that should have settled it, right? They found Eden using geography. Whether or not Eden was real, they had at least triangulated the location described in the text of Genesis. Not quite. There's a glaring issue with Calvin's theory and with Calvin's map. While the Tigris and Euphrates do join at one point, they form a single river that empties into the Red Sea. That is to say, they don't split again into the Gihon and Paisan as Calvin claims. There is no Lower Euphrates or Lower Tigris to speak of. And so Eden's location is once again in question. And once again, the whole world is in play. With places like South America back on the table, the search for the garden expanded beyond theologians. Even respectable historians jumped into the debate. Sir Walter Raleigh was one such historian and explorer, an Englishman who, in 1603, published his magnum opus, simply titled The History of the World. It purported to tell the story of Earth from its creation by God through the 2nd century BC. As part of this story, he expounded at length on the many proposed locations for Eden. Raleigh believed that the Garden of Eden was a real place, but one that had likely been reshaped in the various floods and natural geographic shifts in the millennia since Adam and Eve. He said, quote, The place has nonetheless remained what it was, and its rivers are unchanged. End quote. And he believed Eden could be found, discussing the topic at length in his history of the world. Raleigh submitted that South America made an ideal candidate. He said, quote, I know of no other region of the world that has a better and more even temperature, end quote, and that those who proposed it as the true location were not deceived in the nature of the place. But Raleigh ultimately disputed the South America theory, even while admitting its plausibility. Like Calvin before him, Raleigh settled on the Middle East as the likeliest location for the original garden. The Middle East would remain the popular theory of the garden's location for a number of centuries, though there were a number of outliers. Take General Charles Gordon, who, as we said in the opening, believed he found Eden in the Seychelles Islands. Clearly, his theory has not been widely adopted in the years since. For one, you might expect to be able to fly there direct, if that were the case. Still, Gordon's ideas weren't completely off-base, and many others have walked away from the island of Pralin with similar conclusions. The skyscraping trees of Pralin, a species exclusive to the Seychelles, are known as the Coco de Mer, and they have an unusual reputation. Coco de Mer trees are dual-gendered. There are male and female varieties. The nuts and flowers they produce bear an uncanny resemblance to human reproductive organs. 
The male trees make a long cylindrical flower cluster called a catkin. The female trees produce those heavy 60-pound coconuts in shapes strongly suggestive of the female thighs and genitals. The general used this as his first point of evidence. The shapes of these trees weren't just a graphic reminder of humankind's fundamental building blocks. The coco de mer, he claimed, was the original tree of knowledge. In his 1882 manuscript, Eden and its Two Sacramental Trees, Gordon identified the coco de mer as the tree of knowledge since it grew only here in his Eden and nowhere else in the world. Another tree native to the island, the breadfruit tree, was believed to be the tree of life because of its bounty of succulent fruit and prevalence on the island, though unlike the coco de mer, the breadfruit tree wasn't unique to Pralin. But that still leaves some key questions unanswered. For one, the Genesis account of Eden makes a few key claims about the location, most importantly that it fed the modern Tigris and Euphrates rivers, as well as the Pison and Gihon, two rivers whose contemporary names remain a matter of debate. If the island of Pralin is just that, an island, how could it have fed rivers in the Middle East, 3,000 miles away? The answer is contained in maps Gordon drew of the area, which traced his theory for how the waters of Pralin once wound a several thousand mile trail up to the rivers in question. The route of this water flow branched in two directions around the Arabian Peninsula. To the west, it connected with the Tigris and Euphrates in Iraq and Iran. To the east, it snaked up and then branched again, on one side joining the Nile through Egypt, which he theorized was the Pison. On the other side, it met up with the Gihon through the Gulf of Aqaba. Gordon claimed that the site of the Gihon was a modern-day valley in Israel, the Kidron Valley, which meets up with the Dead Sea. You might wonder how Gordon justified his claim that the ocean waters surrounding Pralin could be identified as moving in a specific direction. He had an answer for that, too. The Great Flood. As Noah built his ark and the waters rose, Gordon said the earth was covered, including the land below the Seychelles. The islands had formerly been high plateaus with rivers that ran down the sides and eventually into the four rivers from Genesis. This wasn't too far off from some of the early theories about Eden that we heard last week, like one from 9th century bishop Moses Bar Cephas. He too believed the garden was on a plateau that was inaccessible to humans. In Gordon's version, those plateaus became islands and stayed that way even after the waters receded across the rest of the planet. As for the four rivers, one of them had dried out after the flood, leaving behind a dusty valley in Israel. But the other three still flowed, evidence of Eden's former glory. It may seem kind of out there, but Gordon's theory is impressive for how it links four rivers, separated by thousands of miles of desert, all to a single source. But there's one huge flaw. His main piece of evidence is a path for four rivers that simply doesn't exist anymore. The Great Flood is a convenient way to cover that lack of proof. But once you do that, there's little to prevent you from identifying any number of gorgeous vacation spots as the real Garden of Eden. General Gordon was at the tail end of a period of renewed interest in the real location of Eden, sparked by Columbus's journey to the Americas. 
All of these theories used history and science to attempt to name the garden's location. Most popular theories favored the Middle East or South America. None of the theorists could predict the next big turn in the debate, though. The unlikely theory of Eden that took a whole religion by storm. Maybe the Garden of Eden was in Missouri. Up next, we'll explore that theory. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Much of our discussion of Eden has been centered on Christian theology and interpretation. This is where the most prominent scholarship has stemmed from, due to Christianity's dominance in Europe. But our next theory of Eden takes a turn toward the United States. Specifically, northwestern Missouri. A few miles off Route 13 in Missouri, you'll find a gravel road that winds past farmhouses and thickets of trees. Follow that road, and you'll find the site known to the Mormon faith as Adam Andi Amun. An overlook gives visitors a view onto the lush green valley below. To understand its importance, we have to go back to 1830. That's when Joseph Smith, then living in small town New York, published the Book of Mormon. He claimed the book was a transcription of golden inscribed plates he'd found near his family farm and, with the help of some divine guidance, translated. Additionally, Smith claimed he had experienced a number of revelations, as he called them, visits from angels, Jesus, and God that guided him on the path to creating the Mormon religion. In 1831, after publishing the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith moved to Kirtland, Ohio, where he quickly built up the Mormon church to a congregation numbering in the thousands. The success was short-lived as Smith was driven out of the county by locals who feared the growing power of the Mormon church. That's how, in 1838, the Mormons and Joseph Smith wound up in Independence, Missouri, driven there by one of Smith's apparent revelations. Here, Smith claimed the Mormons would build their temple because a vision had told him that Independence would be the location of Jesus' second coming, and the Mormons would be there to welcome him. The community settled in Independence, and that's how, one early spring morning in 1838, Joseph Smith found himself wandering the property of farmer Lyman White. Smith and his followers had spent the previous night camped out on the property, which was located about 70 miles northeast of Independence. In the morning, Smith explored the land and found a stone structure. Immediately, he declared that this was Adam's prayer altar and that Adam and Eve had settled here after their expulsion from the garden. So Adam on the Amun was the land east of Eden described in the Bible, but he didn't cite a location for the Garden of Eden itself. Mormon writers, including Smith's contemporary Brigham Young, believed that Independence, Missouri was the original location for Eden. After all, it was west of Adam on the Amun, and it was an important site in their theology, since it was the location of the eventual second coming. 
It doesn't exactly feel like paradise, though. Missouri summers are hot and humid. Winters are bitterly cold. But in the Second Coming, independence was supposed to be transformed into paradise on Earth. So, they reasoned, perhaps it once was paradise, too. That would make it an auspicious location for Jesus' return, too, being humankind's first home on Earth. Toward the end of 1938, Joseph Smith and his followers were expelled from Missouri as they had been from Ohio a few years earlier. This expulsion was particularly painful, though. Independence was their Mecca. Their temple, which remained unbuilt, was left in an abandoned lot. It's hard not to see parallels to the Eden story. Perhaps one reason Brigham Young and others declared the site Eden was that they felt a connection to the original story. Like Adam and Eve, the Mormons were expelled from their home. And like Adam and Eve, they believed their home was paradise. At least it used to be and would be again. But Adam on the Amun is just as instructive. It suggests that Adam and Eve continued their lives despite the pain of expulsion. Adam continued to pray devotedly before the stone altars that, thousands of years later, would be discovered by Joseph Smith. Mormons followed Adam's example, picking up and rebuilding their religion, even after being forced from Missouri. Eventually, they settled their headquarters in Utah, and their influence spread. Here we see the meaning of Eden in the Mormon faith, and how it differs from other religions. Expulsion is painful. But the change it brings is necessary, according to the Book of Mormon. It says that if Adam and Eve had stayed in the garden, quote, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery, doing no good, for they knew no sin, end quote. In essence, variety is the spice of life. Without suffering, there can be no pleasure. And perhaps with patience, what's been lost may even be restored. The church now owns significant land in Independence, Missouri, including the land originally meant for their temple. In the Mormon faith, if you go to Missouri, you can go to paradise. But you'll have to be patient. It won't look like the garden described in the stories until the Second Coming. The theories that locate Eden outside the Middle East encounter one problem again and again. The Euphrates River. John Calvin wasn't wrong when he stated that the Ferrat, as it's called in Genesis, was nearly universally understood to be the Euphrates River that runs through Iraq. A clear linguistic lineage traces the Euphrates' various names across languages, unmistakably linking its many forms back to the same river. That should close the matter. One can quibble about whether the Seychelles once flowed all the way into the Middle East or if Babylon is the original home. But any theory that dismisses the Euphrates should be easily dismissed itself. However, William Fairfield Warren disagreed. In 1885, Warren, a Methodist minister and first president of Boston University, was faced with a crisis. Nearly 30 years prior, Charles Darwin had published his groundbreaking book on the origin of species to massive controversy. Scientific advancement was at the doorstep of religion and threatening to undermine deeply held beliefs of the faithful. A scholar himself, William Warren was not an opponent of science, but as a minister, he wasn't so willing to give up on the tenets of his religion. And so he took it upon himself to bring hard science to the Bible. He started with a true scientific statement. 
Millions of years ago, the Earth had gone through a warming period, one that rendered the climates of continents we thought we knew unrecognizable. This meant that one couldn't simply judge Eden's location by its current beauty, or lack thereof. We simply didn't know what a place like now-frozen Antarctica would have been like millions of years ago. But he didn't think Eden was in Antarctica. In fact, he believed the literal polar opposite. Eden was at the North Pole. The North Pole, he argued, had a fantastical element to it that lent itself to the grandeur and wonder of the Bible. In the warming cycle of this prehistoric period, the North Pole may well have been tropical. Warren suspected it was home to giant creatures like the woolly mammoth, dinosaurs, and towering sequoia trees, which paleontologists of the time believed originated in one primordial tropical paradise. Helping Warren's case for the North Pole was the fact that, at the time, nobody had ever actually been there. So what about the Euphrates? Well, Euphrates was the Greek translation of the Hebrew word froth, Warren claimed that this was a generic term meaning the deep. It's a debated but plausible interpretation. The deep, obviously, is not a name necessarily unique to any one river. In fact, it's a pretty common way to describe bodies of water. And so again, the whole world was opened up. There was real metaphorical power to this notion, placing humanity's beginnings at the northernmost point on the map. That meant that when they were expelled, humans slowly spread southward in every direction, as if they were just tumbling down from the peak. William Warren's scientific approach to the issue yielded some odd results. Darwin had observed that many species of plant and sea life varied in size, depending on where they were located. From this, Warren concluded that humans too might vary in size. Ergo, Adam and Eve were probably giants. Warren added to that absurdity with a weird racist ranking of world cultures by supposed worthiness. The metrics were how closely cultures followed Christian doctrine, so they obviously favored Europeans and Americans. Whatever flaws exist in Warren's theories, they caught on with a significant portion of the public and drove interest in exploring the North Pole for clues that might lend credence to the idea. In fact, the North Pole had captivated people even before Warren's Eden idea came along. Just a few years before the book's publication, the United States Congress had funded a major expedition north, one that was supposed to take two years. By the time Warren's book came out, nobody had heard from the expedition party in four years. Congress had sent in three rescue parties. The problem? They kept crashing and sinking and being forced back by harsh weather. The original troop was eventually recovered, having lost 19 men somewhere in the icy seas north of Siberia. So Congress had put a stop to funding northward expeditions. Over the years, Warren advocated for further trips. His lobbying was unsuccessful, and it would be over 20 years before an unrelated expedition finally did reach the North Pole. In April 1909, Commander Robert Peary finally reached the northernmost spot on the globe with help from some Inuit guides. And what did he find up there? What did the top of the world, William Fairfield Warren's predicted Eden, actually look like? A big sheet of ice, like the hundreds of miles of ice that preceded it, that had trapped and killed many men before him. 
Perhaps that's only fitting, though. After all, the Bible is quite clear that the way to Eden has been barred so that humankind may never return. Either way, the news didn't much faze William Warren. He had never believed that the North Pole would resemble the original Garden of Eden. His whole theory was based on the idea that Eden existed during a warming cycle in Earth's history. He had concluded his own book on the matter, The Original Paradise Found, with these words. Quote, even could some new Columbus penetrate to the secret center of this wonderland of the ages, he could but hurriedly kneel amid a frozen desolation and, dumb with a nameless awe, let fall a few hot tears about the buried and desolated hearthstone of humanity's earliest and loveliest home. End quote. We'll continue the search for Eden after this. Now, back to the story. Spin a globe and close your eyes. Run a finger along the surface as it goes. When the globe stops, open your eyes and see where your finger rests. If it's not on a body of water, then it's probably sitting on some place that people claimed was the Garden of Eden at some point in time. We've discussed a lot of theories that gained traction in their time. Some said that the Garden was in the Middle East or the Seychelles, or Venezuela. Or Missouri, or the North Pole. In their day, all of these got some attention, even if they never became gospel. Now it's time to look at some of the ones that flew under the radar, the ones that, for whatever reason, never found their audience. Our first spin of the globe lands us in Ohio. In 1901, Reverend Edmund Landon West proposed a new location for the garden, Serpent Mound in Adams County, Ohio. Serpent Mound was a Native American landmark, a three-foot-high mound of soil in the shape of a serpent, measuring over 1,300 feet in length. It stood upon a high bluff overlooking Brush Creek. While theories differ on the specific tribe, even the archaeologists of 1901 knew that an ancient group of Native Americans had built it, probably as a burial mound. Reverend West disagreed. He believed the serpent-shaped mound had been constructed by God, or early man as a reference to Eden, a warning to future humans about the dangers of sin and disobedience. Rural Ohio has no shortage of rivers, valleys, and rolling hills, as well as a variety of tree species, all of which suggested it could be the verdant described in Genesis. The four rivers, he claimed, could be found in the tributaries and offshoot streams of Brush Creek below the mound. Not far from the serpent itself, Brush Creek branches off into two other creeks, Middle Fork and Baker Fork. Follow Baker Fork, and it soon splits off into Straight Creek. They may not be as magnificent as the Euphrates, but those four rivers met the criteria from the book of Genesis, according to West. For its novelty, the theory got some minor attention. An amused write-up in the Quarterly Journal of the Ohio Historical Society and some pamphlets written by West himself proclaiming his discovery. Now for another spin of the globe. China, 1914. A businessman named Tsai San Tai, living in Hong Kong, was despairing at the state of a world that had just been thrust into war, the Great War, World War I. In his Hong Kong apartment one night, Tsai set his mind to how he might help unify a deeply divided world. And he stumbled on an unlikely answer, Eden. Politics and religion were not foreign topics for Tsai. 
He was a Chinese Christian, a persecuted minority, and member of a religion that the Chinese government believed was subverting Eastern values with those of the West. These prejudices came to a head in 1900, when the Boxer Rebellion saw the murder of 20,000 Chinese Christians. The rebellion was eventually quashed, but the Christians remained a deeply distrusted minority. One stormy night in 1914, Say was determined to fight the stigma against Christianity in his home country. Eden became his obsession. As a way of removing some of the Western tinge of contemporary Christianity, Tse spent a sleepless week scribbling a passionate piece, placing the original Eden in Western China. Chinese Turkestan, a plateau at the furthest edge of China as it existed then, sat between two mountain ranges. It was marked by four rivers, which Tse, of course, paired to the four rivers from Genesis. Most interestingly, these four rivers flowed into one, the Tarim, which was known for holding precious stones in the riverbed, mostly jade. These stones don't appear in the Genesis account, but a later book of the Bible, Ezekiel, adds to the description of Eden, stating that it held, quote, every precious stone, ruby, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, end quote, and more. Perhaps other theorists assumed such stones would long have been destroyed or removed by the passage of time and changing of the landscape. Whatever the reason, Say is one of the few theorists to locate them in his Eden, even if jade itself goes unmentioned in Ezekiel. Regardless, Chinese Turkestan was a good match geologically, and Say was playing on a widely held belief among the Chinese that they were the first civilized nation, an early bulwark against barbarism. The natural conclusion of such a belief system was that all major elements of life originated in China. Language, architecture, even religion. So why not Eden, too? Again, the flood was used as an explanation for the lack of historical evidence, just as General Charles Gordon had done. What made Say's work unique was his incorporation of Chinese mythology into the Christian story, a way of drawing in his suspicious countrymen with something that sounded familiar. Not unlike the way the original Genesis story used precepts from other cultures and mythologies, not just to turn them on their heads and reject them, but also to present these cultures with a story that still rang true to the myths they'd grown up with. Say Santai's book, The Creation, didn't save Christianity in China or usher in a new era of tolerance and peace. But it did receive attention and an English translation. And it offered a new Eastern perspective on a subject that had been dominated largely by European scholars. There's one more theory, a newer one, and one that radically re-envisions how we conceive of the Garden of Eden to begin with. If you listen to part one of this series, you may recall some heady discussions of the role played by gardens in the ancient world. A quick recap, perhaps, if you've forgotten. Ancient cultures, long before the writing of Genesis, viewed gardens as sacred, often divine places. Those who tended gardens were believed to have special connections with the gods, and gardens sometimes were seen as the earthly dwelling places of those same gods. In fact, the word for paradise comes from Old Persian, a paradeza, meaning a walled orchard or a garden. But what if the original Garden of Eden wasn't literally a garden? What if it was a temple? 
in metaphorical terms, this idea isn't particularly new. The idea of Adam as the first priest caring for the temple that was the Garden of Eden has been bandied about since the early days of scholarship. The Book of Jubilees, written in the first century BC, refers to Eden as a temple. But Francesca Stavrakopoulou, head of the Department of Theology and Religion at England's University of Exeter, has taken the notion to a more literal extreme in a theory as radical as it is intriguing. Stavrakopoulou posits that the Garden of Eden may, in fact, have been Solomon's temple, also known as the First Temple of Jerusalem. The temple predates the writing of Genesis by about 400 years. The temple was destroyed in the siege of Jerusalem in the 6th century BC by the forces of Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar. So how could the Garden of Eden and the Temple of Jerusalem be the same? We obviously have no pictures of the first temple to examine. What we do have are detailed descriptions from the Book of Kings. That description of the temple refers to cherubim that guarded the entrance. Not the real deal, of course, but stone carvings of the multi-faced, vicious beasts described in Ezekiel. These same cherubim supposedly guarded the entrance to Eden. But what about the actual garden? In that same description from the Book of Kings, the Temple of Jerusalem's walls are described as being covered in carvings of plant life. Palm trees, olive trees, flowers, and firs. The walls were made of cedar wood, which produces a sweet, natural fragrance that would have been distinct from the usual stone walls of holy places. As much as the temple was a tribute to a beloved god, it was just as reverent toward the natural world. It honored gardens and their divinity. Of course, man built the Temple of Jerusalem, historically and biblically. But Stavrakopoulou suggests that when Nebuchadnezzar's armies raised the temple and sacked the city, an important link between the people and their god was severed. The book of Genesis was written not long after the destruction of the temple, and the Eden story makes a perfect metaphor for what happened. From the people's perspective, the temple was their connection to God. It was indebted to the natural world in its design. And it was destroyed violently. Their land was captured, their place of worship burned. They must have felt like a people displaced. Maybe those early scholars got it right when they suggested the story was both literal and spiritual. Eden was real. It had a physical location, and it represented the ultimate link between the people of Jerusalem and God. For those of the Christian faith, the Garden of Eden represents more than the birthplace of mankind. It was a holy site that represented the link between man and his divine creator. In this episode, we've presented theories as to the geographical location of the fabled garden. If the garden can truly be traced back to a specific location on Earth, that place is likely a far cry from the lush paradise Genesis describes. If the biblical garden truly exists, it likely does so in such a way that we mortals can't begin to comprehend. This is one mystery that is likely to remain unexplained, which, of course, is one of the key attributes of faith itself. If you're looking for more unexplained mysteries, you can find us as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, 
CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Thomas Dolan Gavitt and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>